It's very good to be back at Abayagiri. Um, I, some of you I don't know, many of you are old friends. It's really good to see everyone. And yeah, I, I guess, yeah, it was only a few hours ago that I had no idea I'd be giving the Vesak talk. So, but this is how it works, you get asked and yeah. Anyway, so you say yes and you give the talk. So, it's been mentioned before, today is Vesak. And in the Theravada Buddhist lunar calendar, there are three major traditional holidays. And Vesak is the full moon of May. It's a bit strange, it's in June this year, due to oddities of the calendar. And Vesak is Buddha Day celebrating the Buddha's birth, full awakening, and parinibbana. Then Asala Puja is the, typically the full moon of July. That's Dhamma Day, celebrating the first teaching at Varanasi uh, to the five disciples. And then the full moon of February is Magha Puja, that's Sangha Day, celebrating the spontaneous gathering of 1,250 Arahant disciples and the giving of the Awada Patimoka. So, yeah, Buddha Day. And so on these days, we, just every two weeks, there's a Patimoka ceremony where this, this time Ajahn Chunda recited the Patimoka, which is uh, pretty impressive given that he's acting abbot right now and extraordinarily busy. He took the time to chant Patimoka and all the practice that that takes. And then we listen to a, a short awada by Lomporpasano, which was very inspiring. And so, yeah, I thought to talk about similar themes. So, yeah, Buddha Day. Lumpur, this, this day celebrates the birth, the full awakening, and the Parinibbana of the Buddha. So, Lumpur pointed out that the Buddha was born like all of us have been born, faced I mean, the same challenges of having a human body and a human mind. And the Buddha died like all of us will die. Faced the same challenges of growing old. He lived to 80 years old. But in the middle of that, he did something very extraordinary, which was awakening. And in a way, yeah, that, that awakening is the central, the central point of Buddhism. If the Buddha hadn't awakened, there would be no Buddhism. It was, that's, that's, what, that's what brings us here. So, yeah, that the crux of it, what 
yeah, what is that awakening? I guess to set the context, I think probably I was reflecting earlier that right now our culture is, what should we say, doesn't, doesn't really have a sense of meaning. Um, if you read the newspapers, you get absolutely, there's absolutely no direction or meaning. It's all, all news. And, you know, this happens, that disaster, that other disaster, maybe a good thing once in a while, but nothing telling you this, this is what a meaningful life could be. Just doesn't, the newspapers never say that. Um, or at least very rarely. And if they do, it's not unified. Some people have, people have all sorts of different opinions about it, and our society doesn't, doesn't agree and doesn't even really want to agree. And so for those of us who live in this, it's yeah, confusing. So the Buddha's awakening provides direction if we if we are if that's what we want to it, it's poten- it's a way you can potentially orient your life around that the the buddha called his path a noble path and so seeking seeking that awakening is noble both bringing you beyond the world and it's what you do is all good actions but first, looking more at that, that awakening, um, I think the Buddha, there's a simile where yeah, the Buddha was born in the world, grew up in the world, but then went beyond the world. Just like a lotus is, its lotuses begin in the mud at the bottom of a pond, and then they grow up through the water off, you know, out of the, some of them come out of the water fully, and then you have a beautiful flower that, although it began in the water, has now, is now blooming above it. And Chithurst has a lotus pond, which is, you can witness this for yourself if you go there. And that's, so, and similarly, yeah, so the Buddha was born in the world, grew up in the world, and went beyond the world. And this has to do with going beyond the world doesn't mean attaining a special state of mind. Um, Because the Buddha, yeah, the Buddha in his analysis described what we, the potential realm of things we can imagine we, you know, or try, the, imagine we or try to be these called the five aggregates. So form, the material form of the body, feeling um, positive, pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, uh, feeling tones, perception, the whole realm of yeah, what we what we look at, how we perceive the world, the. Um, just when something comes up, recognizing, oh, that's, that's a deer, um, or that's a car, or 
that's so-and-so and she's like that. This is all perception. And mental formations, the habits, patterns, the, cho the choices we make, and consciousness, just raw experience of sense data. You know, there's, there's an experience of what it's like, what red is like, is consciousness. You can't really, unless you've, if you're colorblind, you can't, you don't know what red is like. You don't experience that aspect of consciousness. It's perhaps the most subtle and not describable. And the Buddha suggests that that's, that everything we cling to, everything we take to be ourself, falls in that. And if you think about, you know, we have these, this wish, you know, may, this is the whole scope of body and mind. And so much of our life is spent thinking, may my body and mind be like this and not like that. Or may other people's bodies and minds be like this and not like that. That's our, that's our life. And what, certainly the newspapers don't know anything other than that. You know, that's... And the Buddha said, you don't find, you don't find liberation there. The, that's, that whole realm is unsatisfactory and can't be other than that. And this, this is something we can verify, you know, we can verify for ourselves. You know, I think there, I think there's a, we, in a way, we often learn this pretty early on. Ajahn Amaro tells a story where he, when he was a child, there was some toy in a toy store. And he told his mom, very genuinely, Mom, um, if basically, if I had that toy, I'd never want anything else again. And he, the way he describes it, he totally believed that. It really seemed real to him. And so his family was poor, so there was no guarantee that he would actually, that they'd able, they'd actually able to buy the toy. But I think it was Christmas or a birthday or something, and the toy showed up. And boy, he, Ajahn Amaro, um, Jeremy Horner, then was happy. And then I think a couple days later, he, he, com he started to complain to his mom about something like, Mom, I'm bored, or whatever. or whatever. That's what I said to my mom. I don't know what. But then his mom pointed out, well, you got that toy, right? And now you're unhappy? You know, so what's going on there? And young Jeremy thought, she is right. I did think that. I was wrong. <laughs> and that's, that's a major awakening. Oh, what I thought was satisfactory, what you really believe was satisfactory, isn't. You know, and that's, that's on the level of, you know, a child's toy. But how often does that happen to adults? You know, we think, oh, this, when I get that, I'll really be happy. And the that never does it. And the Buddha points this out and says, you can do better. And I think the modern world some, you know, generally tries to distract us from that. Um, just keep, 
you know, or says the best you can do is find a series of that's, none of which will be satisfactory. And so, what my, my, it's, it's always challenging to try to describe a fully awakened being. But at the same time, if you don't try, if you don't try, then you'll, you may not be sufficiently inspired to practice with as much diligence as the practice deserves. So hence, we try to talk about awakened beings, not because you can actually, again, you can make mistakes, but one mistake is not to, and then you, and then you find other things to do with your time other than practice Dhamma. So, the, my, as, as I understand the awakening of, you know, the awakening, it's a profound shift of identity away from, one has more or less the same experience of body and mind, but one knows that isn't me, and there isn't a me beyond that either. It's not like you find another kind of body or mind. It's not a, there are lots and lots of refined mental states that are possible, and none of them, no mental state is awakening. But mental states are all contained in those, in those khandhas. And it's Ajahn Shah called Nibbana the reality of non-grasping. That letting go. And I think it's, this is helpful when one looks at the, say, the passing away of the Buddha, which is the third part of this. And we typically, you, devout Buddhists usually won't say the Buddha died. They'll say he realized um, parinibbana. And that's not, that's not just, that's not just towing a party line. Um, there's some wisdom there. Because most of us, you know, the aggregates definitely stopped, just like everybody else. But most of us identify with those aggregates, with this body and mind that we experience, and the Buddha didn't. And if I, re I can't remember who the, exactly who the discussion occurred, but there was one disciple of the Buddha, I think it's it may have been Sariputta who spoke to him about this, who came up with the view, as I understand the Buddha's teachings, a fully awakened being, a Tathagata, does not exist after the death of the body. And so I'll just assume it's Sariputta, my best memory. And so I guess the monks say, well, this is a wrong view. Let's get Sariputta to talk this um, misguided monk out of it. So. They do, and Sariputta, Sariputta begins by asking this monk, do you regard the Tathagata as form? Basically, do you think, do you think the, 
do you think the awakened quality of the Buddha is form, you know, the physical body? And if, you know, of course not. Is it feeling, the sensation, you know, the, the uh, tones of sensation? No, that's that's not. That's certainly not the Buddha. That's you know, that's not why you follow this, you know, this master. Ditto with perception, mental formations, and consciousness. This monk said, "No, I can't. You know, you can't find the Buddha in those." And then the question is, well, what about all of them together? And that might have been a bit more, but this monk even misguided as he was, still had some wisdom. After pondering, he said, no. Uh, taking them all together, you can't find the Buddha there either. That's, that's, not, that's, not a way, you know, that's not what I regard as the Buddha. And then Sariputta continued, well, what, a, do you, you know, what about, you know, so can you find the Buddha apart from those? Well, no, I've, you know, I've certainly, yeah, there's no, no way I could, talk to the Buddha without those going on, and no way I could even conceive of the Buddha without them. So sorry, Buddha then said, well, if you cannot find the Tathagata here and now, how in the world can you say that the Tathagata ceases to exist after death? And it's a, that's a strong argument. The, the monk changed his view. Um, and what we, yeah, what we cling to defines us. Cling to nothing, and one is defined by nothing. And that's not an annihilation, according to the Buddha. It is massive freedom. The sort of freedom that we really want. The sort of freedom that doesn't change. The sort of freedom that we practice Dhamma to reach for. And it's not a, it's also not a detachment or it's not a disengagement from the world. Um, when, When the heart is free, there's nothing pulling on it. And it can actually attend to the world much, in a much in a much freer way, in a much more open way, and in a much more compassionate way. My understanding is once one, once one drops all that suffering, one realizes just how badly everybody else is suffering. And that's motivation. My understanding, I have heard the story where at Nongta Mahabua, was meeting with a group of Westerners, Western monks, possibly from, I think they were from Wat Pananachat. And, you know, Westerners, some of them, some of, some of Westerners are willing to ask questions that most Thais wouldn't dare. So someone asked him. So someone asked Long Ta. Long Ta, what, you know, basically, what's the, ex- you know, what is the experience of an enlightened being? Monk taught only compassion. And he was regarded as one of the fiercest monks in Thailand. But for that was that was his that was his response, compassion. And that was that was people's impression of the Buddha. 
um, in but more in the Mahayana tradition, he goes as you know, the compassionate Buddha is usually an epithet. But even in our chanting, um, Budo Sasudo Karuniko Maha Maha Kar, and so the Buddha absolutely pure with ocean-like compassion. Um, both that absolute freedom from any sort of any sort of stickiness and yeah a compassion that is very hard to fathom that's that's awakening and so with this yeah it's it's very helpful i think it's helpful to ponder this and to let the heart be inspired by this because it's really useful to be inspired. If we're not inspired, we won't, we won't put forth effort. And the Buddha explained it. Well, the Buddha certainly put forth effort himself. And he said, there aren't shortcuts. Um, you have to work. We have, you know, we have to be willing to give up things that hinder us and cultivate qualities that and cultivate wholesome qualities to replace them. Uh, this, is, this is the cultivation of the Noble Eightfold Path. But the, however, cultivating the Noble Eightfold Path is an inspired and an inspiring way to live. And it's, yeah, it's noble. People who, people who dedicate their lives to that are noble people. They're aspiring to something that is worth aspiring to. And as I mentioned, yeah, their actions, you aim to harm no one. One, of the, one, of the, one thing you notice in the Buddha's teachings is that the Buddha is always aiming at actions of body, speech, and mind that benefit everyone. If it doesn't benefit everyone, the Buddha suggests, well, keep looking. Find some, there may be something more skillful. Look for it. So this is, yeah, it, and it's, it's good to recollect the people who we know who are further along on this path than us, and who, and yeah, we can see the results in their lives. Um, that's, yeah, we have, you know, I certainly, for me, I can remember when I was back when I was a physics graduate student, I had a, I had a, I really, I had a very good under, I had a very good graduate advisor. If I hadn't had such a good graduate advisor, I wouldn't have finished my PhD. Uh, but yeah, John Clark was really much better than most um, professors at mentoring graduate students. And yeah, he, he really cared about us. He was, and he, he was rather disappointed when I told him I was not going to continue physics. But I was also coming up here to Abayagiri Monastery, and so I had 
contact with both Adrian, with Adrian Passano and Adrian Amaro. And as I, as I ponder, you know, as I spent time both in the physics lab and up here, I realized that while I had immense respect for my research advisor, Professor John Clark, I wanted to be Ajahn Passano. And so it's like, no, no question there. Uh, you know, I, I follow him. You know, I, you know just a total, real difference. So, so I'm here. And yeah, what? I don't regret it. This is, I think I, I probably would end up, yeah, well, I couldn't even apply for a postdoc simply for the simple reason I did not want to be a postdoc. And that's, that's the first thing. If you're, going to, if you're going to continue in research, you have to want it. Otherwise, it won't work at all. I, but I wanted this. I, this, is, this is what I was inspired by. So yeah, we come here and reflect on, we come here, we reflect on this, can yeah, recollect the, the Buddha and our teachers. And just, yeah, how this, it's really helpful to get a sense of how, how this feels in the heart, what, what this inspiration feels like. Um, sada um, in Pali, faith is one word for it. But this is, not, this is not the faith that asks you to believe in things that are either impossible or improbable. Um, when, when you come to understand the, sort of the structure of the Buddha's awakening, and it seems, well, that's, that seems plausible. And then when you meet people who, who, to a greater or lesser degree, seem to exemplify that, you think, wow, they're special. And they say this worked for them. Take note of that. This is possible. And that's, that's faith. And in, in the process of awakening, particularly for the first stage, the most important qualities, at least according to the suttas, are faith and wisdom. Faith and discernment might be a better word for the second quality. So sada and panya. And one of, one of the teachings of Lumpur Pasano that I appreciate is, yeah, it's, if I remember it correctly, is it panya, panya, with panya you realize that you should let go. But that isn't enough. It's faith that actually finally lets go. Finally, finally decides that clinging to this body and mind is, as the Buddha suggested, unsatisfactory. And so, let it go, you know, drop that attachment and see what happens. And that's something we haven't done before. And Panya sits there calculating, thinking, well, should I do it? Should I not do it? Do it? Not do it? Hmm, not sure. And faith says, well, yeah, I, I trust I'll do it. But probably not in words at that point, just does. So yeah, particularly for us Westerners who are much more, well, some of us are here Westerners, are much more calculating types. 
uh, it's really helpful to learn how to cultivate faith in order to balance that. And yeah, when, when these faculties are in balance, then, then Dhamma practice can go smoothly. So I offer this for your reflection tonight.